This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. So I saw the uh, London Lions became the greatest British basketball team of all time or something. The greatest? That's the way the article made it out to me. What happened? Uh, they won a game in the European something cup. What's funny about that is that's <laughs> that stands testament to the sad state of British basketball. That they're up in that they're the upper level of all English basketball teams because they won a game in Europe. It's it's confusing to me because I'm fairly certain when I was a kid there was the London Towers. Yeah, yeah, London Towers, London Leopards. Uh, you had quite a few teams, but our best level has still been so far below Europe. It's insane. So the London Towers were never in the Euro Leagues, as far as I remember. No, maybe what you should do is have a look on Euro basketball, and you'll see that. I don't think there's a single team that comes from the UK. We're just not good enough here. So, I've just done a bit of a Google. It says here, the EuroLeague is widely recognised as the top-tier league in Europe. However, it is not part of the European Basketball Pyramid by the FIBA. So, what the hell is it then? So, the league consists of 18 teams, of which 16 are given long-term licences and two wildcards. So, it's a semi-closed league, so they invite two teams in. So, there is no relegation process. By the look of the teams, there are also teams that have football teams and, and handball teams and polo teams and all the rest of it. So they're the, they're the European clubs like, say, Real Madrid, Panathinaikos, where they have multiple different sports within their club. So that's possibly why there aren't any English ones, because we don't have the same system. Yeah, but I don't think it's about a system. I think it's about talent, because when the NBA has pre-season games, it's been set up by the commission of the NBA that the pre-season teams, some of them are EuroLeague teams. Yeah, I'm looking at this now. So there's there's a list of games that all these um, American teams seem to have played against various different EuroLeague teams, and they're all happening in sort of the mid October period, which is just, just before. Yeah, preseason. So so for the Americans, they're preseason, but I'm I don't know I don't know when the EuroLeague runs from. So my question to you is is if this London Lions team is the best team we've ever had, and this is the standard, how are we so bad? Now, we don't have two days or a month and a whiteboard for me to explain everything. Okay. But like most sports, it comes down to the grassroots. Grassroots is horrible. Growing up playing basketball, playing competitive basketball, playing, as you would call it in the UK, semi-professional basketball, you get to that point where you realise we have a couple of good players who somehow have made it through London's densely populated and has a lot of talent. Yeah. But it doesn't have the infrastructure that up north has. Which is odd. So this is how messed up it is. The culture in Newcastle yeah. around basketball is is weirdly kind of similar to football. Okay. They've got a, a decent-sized stadium and then you see everyone just go there. It's like it's in, integrated into the culture. Right. But in a lot of places in London, you don't really have that. It's yeah. like... Behind closed doors in hidden places. Right. So unless you're in the crowd, you don't know about it. Right. Whereas you couldn't really miss the Newcastle Eagles. You couldn't really miss their games. So yeah. I think that's the problem between the disparity between the North and the South. And, you know, once in a while you get players who can, who know about, who are good in the South and can go and get the infrastructure and better themselves in the North. Right. So because of the disparity with the South having better players, but up north having better infrastructure, 
in the ideal world, you'd actually have a setup whereby when players in the South got to a certain level, a certain age, and they were standout players, they would actually go up north to some of the more established teams and they'd be cultivated there with better infrastructure to see if they could get the best potential out of them. And you may not see a massive improvement over the first couple of years, but over a five to ten year period, they actually could drastically improve the level of English players and also improve the level of English players in the BBL because ultimately in Europe players who get scouted to go to the NBA are not ones that go to college in America or high school to enter the educational system they're pre-made players who've been developed from a young age in the EuroLeague and are at a level to compete in America Whereas in the UK, when I say most of the players, we're talking about a handful. Those players usually leave the UK, have to regress in education to go into the American high school program, then go on to college, and then go into the NBA. And if you think about it, ultimately, you're putting yourself into their system, and you're literally just a small fish in a big pond. And you've got to fight just like all the other American kids who have got a one-up on you anyway to get to the level you need to be at. But as I said at the beginning, I could talk about this all day long. And on top of being able to talk about this all day long, I've just touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of the problem of English basketball and why we are at such a low level. But that's a conversation for another time and another day. Listeners, stay tuned because I have to get it off my chest soon. Guys, for those who haven't rated and reviewed us, please do so. If you're able to rate and review us, then you can actually start to send us stuff, send us questions that you may have about fitness or any queries or any topics that you may want us to talk about because ultimately we're here to help you guys better understand the world of training. So a couple of weeks ago, we discussed how cardio isn't the best for weight loss. But Richard... It wasn't so much just cardio wasn't the best thing for weight loss. Listeners, we actually went through the differences between steady state cardio, HIIT cardio, and my personal favourite, which is intervals. And understanding that to say, most people that say they're doing HIIT cardio actually aren't because they haven't got their heart rate into the right zones. And if you do HIIT cardio right, to a certain extent, for the period of time that most people do HIIT cardio, you're probably going to puke after a while. Right, so, I mean... Effectively, what we basically summarised and said is that no one does hit, and they either end up doing intervals or steady state, but whichever one they pick, it's not the best method to lose weight. And then we've also discussed how a bad diet will stop you from reaching your weight loss goals. Yes, and the key thing is you can't really classify a diet bad unless it is affecting your fitness goals. Yeah, because ultimately, if a vegan diet works for you and means that you feel like you're energized and you can progress in your goals all well and good if a keto diet works for you and it feels like you're getting the results you need from it in terms of progression towards your goals all well and good but for me a keto diet was a bad diet yeah i have an extremely fast metabolism so what we're going to talk about now is a bit more exciting we're going to talk about how to train your metabolism let's get into it richard okay so first of all let's just recap briefly on what your metabolism actually is so metabolic rate is the speed at which your metabolism runs. Your metabolism is the process by which you take calories in through food and you burn them off to create energy. So when it comes to training, 
certain types of activity naturally cause a slowdown of your metabolism. So we discussed that in, in our cardio podcast where we mentioned that excessive amounts of cardio can cause your metabolism to adapt and slow down. I did 35 kilometers on the bike yesterday and my weight is exactly flat day to day. It's about how adaptive your metabolism is. So the more cardio work you do, the more adapted your metabolism becomes to that excess. And it's the same thing with calories. If you eat 4,000 calories a day every day, your metabolism will adapt to consuming 4,000 calories a day. And it will get used to that. And you won't excessively, you'll still gain weight, but you won't excessively gain weight all the time. What's funny about this point is the overconsumption is very well known. But not many people actually think about the underconsumption. Because with a lot of my clients, that's one thing that I need to also educate them on because they don't believe it's possible. They believe that from your set amount of calories a day and anything below that is always good. And you can never go too low in your calorie count other than you're not having any energy. But one of the most important things and the hardest things to explain to them is your body has a perfect window of calories. Yeah. Where there's a low end and a high end and in there you can... Lose weight if you need to lose weight. Maintain if you need to maintain. And if you go up a bit more, you can gain, you know, like muscle mass and stuff like that. But some people who use their diet as the only form of losing weight and they decide to go on a really low calorific diet actually get the opposite result. And they don't lose weight because they get to a point where their metabolism slows down to that amount of calories rather than where they were before, where the metabolism was quite fast and all they needed to do was kickstart it with a bit of exercise to keep it or make it even faster. Exactly. And so this is the key point because if you're someone who's supposed to eat 1,500 calories a day and you've worked your metabolism down to 800, the problem with doing that is when you're only consuming 800 calories, it gives you very little leeway on where to go because 800 calories is an okay enough amount day to day to do small activity. But as soon as you try and add in a lunch or as soon as you try and add in uh, a dinner or going out or something like that, you easily go over your calorie number and you slowly start to gain weight, even though you're only consuming 800 calories a day. So metabolic rate makes a huge difference. There is one aspect of training that really benefits your metabolic rate, and that's resistance training. How? By undertaking resistance training, your body has to work muscle. That muscle gets damaged, that damage of that muscle requires calories to repair. So it creates a bigger demand. So effectively over time, the mechanism does twofold. It creates more of a calorie demand at the beginning, and it also creates more of a long-term calorie demand by building muscle. But then, because it's building muscle, like we said before about your body getting used to a certain amount of calories, if you eat more calories to match that, it will stabilize out after a while, won't it? You build up your calorie numbers over time. So let's use some examples. Let's say someone eats 800 calories a day and then you start doing resistance training with them. That might go up to 1,000 calories that they need. So they start to eat 1,000 calories because they're eating up to match that, that profile. Effectively, they're still maintaining, they're not really losing any weight at that point. But once you build them up to a healthy amount of calories, so let's say 1,500, which wouldn't take that long necessarily because you're not necessarily building huge amounts of muscle in this process. Mm -hmm. That's what people need to understand. You can then do a healthy cut and take them to say 1350, 1300, and then they'll see weight loss again. 
but they'll have more muscle tone as a result. Which is what we want. So Lawrence, what do you think are the best exercises to raise metabolism? Now it's funny you say that, Richard. I looked at a lot of lists of, you know, the things people talk about and I've heard a lot of things about, you know, what people think they should do to raise metabolism. Right. And what's funny is they forget the most fundamental thing. That work on the principle called EPOC. Okay, so what's EPOC? Excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. In a nutshell, it's any exercise whereby when you finish training, you're still burning calories. Right. And those type of exercises encompass resistance exercises as opposed to literally anything else. Okay, so this is, this is why your person who goes and does a spin class can burn a high amount of calories in a spin class, but as soon as they finish, they no longer burn any more. Yep, stops. And also why your newbie who runs on the treadmill sees an increased metabolism early on. And also why your newbie who runs on the treadmill for 10 minutes sees an increased metabolism. The increase in metabolism is only because they're exercising. Yes, it's a new stimulus, so therefore the body creates... When we talk about adaptation, we're really talking in this, in this scenario about EPOC because that run they're doing stimulates... Uh, post-exercise energy consumption this is why you get newbie gains when you do anything new you see early progress because the adaptation system doesn't know what's happening it doesn't last very long it lasts like about two weeks if anyone's out there who's not a trainer when you look online a lot of things they tell you to do are things that are basic but ultimately are all just cardio based and as Richard said after two weeks you're not really going to get that epoch effect anymore it's well, just going to be a standard cardio effect. Well, the reason why they use those exercises are because they're measurable for someone in a lab because you can get someone, hook them up and make them run and you can run them at this specific speed for this amount of duration and see the effect of it. And then in a, in a six to eight week study, that works really well. What you can't do is do resistance training with them because you have to teach them a technique and spend time learning that technique and progress them. And there's no guarantee that that technique is going to be up to speed in time Give me an example of that, Richard. Okay, so if I'm on a stationary bike and I sit there and I do 10 minutes of cycling, right, I might burn off in 10 minutes of cycling 100 calories, okay? But if I sit on a seated row and do a seated row uh, for the listeners, you know, a, a machine attached to a pulley where you row, row, pull the weight in. Now I might do, I can't do that for 10 minutes straight because my grip will go. It's not my back that's gonna go first, it's my grip, right? And I could do that at a working rate that's say 70% of my max. So I could match the output that I would have on the stationary bike. But because of rest periods, I'd have to do an overall seven out of 10, so 70% for the duration. Now, if I did 10 minutes of, of seated row, what weight is that gonna be? Because to begin with, it's gonna be super light. But by the end, with my grip fatiguing, it's gonna be super intensive. Am I gonna burn the same amount of calories? Possibly. What's going to happen the next day? My grip is going to be destroyed. Is my back going to be destroyed? I don't know. So it doesn't have the same stimulus effect because you're not working the same muscle fiber type. But is that why they can't test it and why, that, why people use most of these standard cardio things rather than using resistance work? Even yeah. though we know the resistance machine rowing would cause a bigger epoch in the long run compared to the cardio. The only thing that really makes sense is calisthenics. That's the only thing. 
Other than that, they forgot all of the key things which are needed. So going back to the question you asked me at the beginning, Richard, resistance training, compound movements. Trainers, you may know them. Listeners, you may not know them. So we're talking about, I'll name a few, Richard, then you can finish off the list. We've got squat, deadlift, pull-ups. Well, funnily enough, Lawrence, we actually did an entire podcast on this about the best exercises. Yeah, and we, we did. actually named them already. So yeah. if you want to go back, you can hear us have this discussion in more detail where we rank them. But yeah, Lawrence is right. Squat, deadlift, pull-up, I'd argue overhead press, yep. bench press, uh, a bent over row. Yep. Um, Romanian deadlift. Romanian deadlift. I mean, there are variations of all the other lifts, like split mm -hmm. squat, that kind of thing as well. Um, when we're looking at cardio perspective, I don't know why more people don't look at swimming. That's the only one. Rowing, the, the problem is, swimming, you would say yes, because there's still a resistance in the body in that way and everything is being resisted. But you can't really say the same about the rest because there, there are more. If we're going off epoch, yeah, and we're trying to get the maximum amount of post-exercise consumption. Yeah. The more resistance that's on the body compared to what you can lift, the more effect you're going to get. Yes, but also there's relative... What's your weight right now? 95. Your weight's 95. My weight's 75. So as you right. said, 20 kg difference. Yeah. I can do, at my weight, I can do... 20, let's say I could do 20 pull-ups. Right. At your weight, you can do 10 pull-ups. Yeah? That's what we used in our analogy. That's yeah. using the analogy. But if I, in order to say that we're having the same stimulus on the body, because, as you said, you become more efficient, me adding 20 kg to my pull-up is the only way I can get the same amount of stimulus comparatively to your normal pull-up. Not necessarily, though. Because what is that 20, k 20 kilos made of in me? Because if you take, say, let's say, let's break these n numbers down, right? Let's say in, in your 75, right, you are, let's call it 30 kilos of muscle. Yep. Right? In my 95, what if I'm only 35 kilos of muscle? That still doesn't... That, yeah, but that means relatively I've only got five extra kilos of muscle on you. So what you're saying is because you've only got... But then you're making it deeper. We're going deep into but the. But this is the hole. reality of the problem because when when you're measuring the the epoch effect, right? When we're doing a pull up, you're adding an extra twenty kilos on, right? But relatively, how much extra work does that require for your muscles to pull? Because what we also don't know is how much of that muscle mass is actually in the lats. Let's say, right? So if your grip and your lats are stronger than my my grip and lats, so you have more muscle there, right? Is that extra twenty kilos actually easier than you? Uh, easier for you to add on than the amount of effort it takes for me to pull my just 10 pull-ups at my weight. Do you see what I mean? See, but that's why the epoch situation becomes, for the listeners, this is where it gets really tricky. Yeah. Because I understand what you're saying, but then we'd have to go even deeper and talk about how you'd have to check how much muscle mass we have yeah, comparatively you... first before you even think about the relation of how much extra weight do I need to add to get the same amount of epoch yeah, because, as you. Yeah, because that's the problem, right? So then, then you end up with this problem because how much effort do I need to put in to do an extra five kilos of weight on my body versus you, right? Because if your extra five kilos is virtually nothing, then yeah, okay, fine, five kilos is a bigger percentage of your weight than my weight but it's, it's harder for me to get that additional because my, my muscle mass is, is, is less, 
relatively. When you take a stationary bike exercise, for example, yes, fine, there's variances in people's leg mass and all the rest of it, but because you can variate the resistance level, you can make sure the output is the same because you can make people work at the same heart rate or the same pace. And that then means that you can match off the epoch, right? The only variation you have is how trained that person is. So listen, what we're trying to say is the reason why there's so many things out there which are wrong in terms of how to maximise your metabolism and increase your metabolism is because what we're talking about with resistance training is a known fact, but it's extremely hard to calculate. And because it's extremely hard to calculate, a lot of people stay away from it. It's kind of like more of an unknown area and you'd have to go deep into journals to truly see what a certain amount of stimulus in terms of resistance training would give you in the long run. But from my experience and from my years of training and years of training clients, resistance training, bar none, increases your metabolism the most. I've had clients coming for a bodybuilding type of um, aesthetics and there's always a six month period where no matter what body part we're working, we always do a leg exercise. And what I say to them is, when they ask about why we have a leg exercise in, I state to them, the biggest muscle group in the body is your legs. That's right. So because you're trying to gain muscle, but also trying to stay as lean as possible, you need to raise or you need to put as much stress on your metabolism to burn as many calories as possible. So by putting in a compound movement like a squat, a deadlift, a split squat, a walking lunge, anything like that, you not only increase the epoch effect after the session, on top of that, you've released more growth hormone because of the demand on the body and the muscles. It's a no-brainer, but there's a lot of information out there which is opposite to what we're saying. Don't get lost in the sea of pointless information. That's right. When we're looking at exercises that create a bigger impact, resistance training is doubly useful because it's scalable. If running is your preferred method of weight loss, all you can do to manipulate that and make it harder is either try and run faster or run longer. And there's a limit to how much faster you can run in a short space of time. So you're gonna end up running longer and longer and longer. Whereas with resistance training, there are loads of factors you can adapt. Obviously, weight on the bar, number of sets, number of reps, speed of the reps. All of these factors you can change. All these factors you can manipulate and then you can constantly challenge metabolism. Let's talk about factors that would impact metabolism negatively. So, one of the things that I always think causes a bit of an issue when it comes to resistance training is technique. Because most of the time, in order for you to work at a level that's really gonna challenge your metabolism, you need to go for a phase where you've accrued enough time learning the technique of the exercise before you go. This is a factor when it comes to resistance training in particular. Because let's take, say for example, uh, the squat. So how much work and how much time do you actually have to spend learning that movement and that, that exercise to gain enough proficiency before you go into it? Quite a lot. But that's where, for the listeners out there, you need to make a clear differentiation between whether the goal is to raise metabolism first or to get the technique right first. Because if you're trying to get the metabolism up first, then you'd pick like a seated leg press. You would pick um, yeah. a row. 
a seated row. You'd pick the machine versions where you have the stability and you don't need to worry about the technique so much. And then, once you've had that first phase, knowing that the metabolism will be increased, then you go back with a lower stimulus on the body and learn the freeway exercises, like the squat, the bent over row, and those ones in comparison because your ceiling in terms of the amount of calories you're going to burn and the effect on the metabolism is going to be a lot higher with the free weight resistance work than it is going to be with a stationary resistance work. Yeah, and this, this is where you also see a difference between someone who is impatient versus someone who wants to do it correctly because the impatient person dives into the cardio work we've already uh, discussed and dives into going low calorie as quick as possible because they're going to see the quickest progression in terms of weight loss and that's going to kill metabolism they're not going to spend the time they need to build the metabolism up to the level that's going to give them the result they really want in the long term so lawrence is right you can you can see this by um when a trainer say works with an individual and puts them on a leg press to build that metabolism up whilst they're working if they're clever on the squat technique at the same time yep this makes sense but it's it's one of those things, after years of training, you realise you're trying to get someone to their goal. And you're trying to get them to their goal as quick as you can. However, you don't want to break any rules. So you want to make sure you've got the foundation and they start to understand the exercises, which are the most complex and most rewarding, but we're using the safer exercises to start the journey. Yeah, so you probably start them in the session by doing some technical squat work and you move them onto the leg press to overload and finish off. So how much of a factor do you think inconsistency of training is where someone does say one session one week, two sessions the next week, none in the third week, three in the fourth week? Of course, it's a big one. Consistency, for most people out there, consistency is the biggest hinder to their training. It's not even so much their training. Because think about it. In, if someone has a bad training program, but they're inconsistent, they'll never know they've got a bad training program. Because they've never done it enough to truly see how bad it is. Well, would, you, would you also say if someone's got a bad training program but they're consistent, they're better than if they're inconsistent they've got That's a good it. training program. Yeah. So it's, it, you get the consistency first and then you get the quality of the session and what you're doing in it. But regardless of where, what you're doing, unless you have consistency, no results. Hence, going back to one of the things I talk about quite a lot is over the Christmas period, my training is always better because I have more time. Yeah. So I focus on the last couple of weeks of December, first couple of weeks of January, and I focus on one or two key goals, and I consistently work towards that for that period, because I know in that period, due to my workload, there's nowhere I can mess up and not get it done. Whereas for a lot of other people, that's a really difficult time to do stuff, because it's when they've got a lot of family commitments and they've got a lot of uh, work-related stuff to finish off. And for most other people you can actually see why January and February are quite clear because in January they're through that phase where they've, they've done all their family commitments back to consistent working and because their work routine is set, they've got much more available time to plan and, and put their sessions in. So let's talk about the role of thyroid here. Thyroid is directly related to metabolism because your thyroid not only regulates body temperature and heart rate, it also has an impact directly on weight loss. So your thyroid, for the listeners that don't know, releases growth hormone into your bloodstream it also has an impact directly on your heart rate and on your body temperature so when we're looking at metabolism it's a crucial component of this 
So effectively an underactive thyroid will mean that you'll struggle to lose weight because your heart rate won't go high enough, your body temperature will never really go up, you'll always feel slightly cold, and your growth hormone won't really release so you'll struggle to develop muscle. So working on exercises that stimulate your metabolic rate will help increase your thyroid function. Okay, linked to this, you've also got the role of the digestive system. Because when your metabolism increases, if you've got a digestive issue, your metabolism might still not run fully because it's compromised. But how, Richard? So let's say you've got an issue with dairy. Now, when we're talking about a digestive issue, that doesn't mean that you're intolerant to dairy. You might just have a slight reaction to dairy. So that slight reaction to dairy means that when you have dairy in your system, your body identifies it partly as a invader. What it then does in reaction to that is it produces antibodies to try and handle what it views as a pathogen. So it starts breaking down and, and rejecting that dairy from entering your system. So it rejects it. Your body doesn't take the benefits of that dairy on. It doesn't let it come in, it doesn't let it absorb and it passes that out of your system. So this will have a compromised effect on your metabolism because your metabolism will then have slowed down to handle the issue that your digestive system is flagging up. Very interesting. So the last point on this is probably the most controversial one. Well, it appears to be between Lawrence and me. So it's about chasing PRs. So based on the RPE scale, what RPE would you imagine has the best benefit on metabolism? Would you say it was nine out of 10? 10 out of 10, 5 out of 10? That's a tough one, because I don't think you can base metabolism on RPE, but if you were, you'd probably say it should be about 7. The reason why I say it's around 7 is because the optimal muscle growth level is 70%. Now, funnily enough, it is 7. Right? Because of that? Yeah, and it's because when you're at 7, your hormone systems, recovery systems, all, all of it seems to work optimally. So that slight submaximal level is actually optimal. The final point I have to make on things that might inhibit metabolic improvement would be around the level of work you do. So work with capital W. So effectively, if you work too hard, if you push too much towards maximals all the time, you're not going to see the metabolic benefit because your system spends too long in recovery. Equally, if you push too many reps and push too intensively on the same sort of way where you're pushing um, high intensity from, from rep numbers, you're also not going to see the benefit. So you have to find that sweet spot of about 70% work in whatever you're doing. But then that's the thing about key phases and making sure you have a strength phase, hypertrophy phase, a endurance phase. That way you get the best of all of it. Because I understand exactly what you mean. Because in a strength phase, your nervous system is going to be sh shot a lot quicker than your metabolism is going to be forced to increase. Yeah, so this is, this is where that uh, other factor comes in of adaptation versus maintenance. So when you're trying to create adaptation, you don't want to try and create too many adaptations because you're not going to get them all. Yeah. So you want to chase one to two. The law of diminishing returns, as yeah. we say. Exactly, because you want to chase one to two because you can get the one to two. You can ensure that what you're doing gets you those one to two. If you push too hard into going for, for maxes, all you're going to do is, you might see an improvement in terms of weight you can lift, but is that going to translate into a quicker metabolism? Probably not. So guys, in closing, what we're really saying is, forget what they talk about. The most effective way to raise your metabolism is to do resistance training. And resistance training 
around 70% on the RPE scale or 70% of the max you can lift for a certain exercise. And also sticking to compound movements as your first port of call in the gym. Yep. So if I'm taking someone through, the first thing I'm going to do is work on technique. The second thing I'm going to do is try and raise metabolism. In the long term, that's going to get me more results, regardless of what I want, whether that person wants weight loss, whether that person wants muscle gain, whether that person wants improved performance in a specific sport. If I get the technique of, of, of the movements right, and if I get the metabolism up, then I can go pretty much from there to anywhere I want to go. Because you've raised your ceiling to the highest possible level in terms of potential gains. Exactly. Raising metabolism is a crucial component of that. And making sure that you've got exercises in that raise that metabolism is vital. And that's why ultimately we say to you, don't overdo the cardio, don't overdo the cutting calories. Because if you raise metabolism, you don't need to have those things in there and they could be nice extras you can plug in. And yeah, when in. you need to. Yeah. Because otherwise you end up having to run for seven hours a day and you eat one stick of celery and then if you eat two, that's it. You're off your diet. Yep. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.